State Representative Scott Fitzpatrick has moved up in the Missouri House in a short period of time. And now the Southwest Missouri native has more to say about the state's budget and a St. Louis football stadium. The Shell Knob Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in St. Louis is... Joe Manis, also St. Louis Public Radio. And joining us from beautiful Shell Knob, Missouri, our special guest today is... I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. A state representative from Barry County, which is in southwest Missouri. Welcome on... Welcome. I think you are... Uh, the first Barry Countyan to appear on our show. We we're always a we're always a big uh, about firsts on politically speaking. So we're thrilled to have you here today uh, on the show. Yeah, uh, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I'm glad to be here. So I I, I wondered if I was ever going to get the invite on <laughs> politically speaking podcast. So I'm glad to finally achieved that. Well, I I think that as as soon as we got over the fact that we were going to do this by phone, you were a shoe in because you have you've quickly become I think a a fairly influential member of the Missouri House of Representatives in a relatively short amount of time. Before we heap more praise upon you and and inflate your ego further. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of what you did before politics, and kind of just explaining how you got into elected office in the first place. Yeah, where you grew up, so forth. Yeah, so I uh, I grew up in Shell Knob, Missouri, and I know I've seen uh, some people when that, you know if there's an article that I'm mentioning, I see in the comments section every once in a while there's a Shell Knob, Missouri series. <laughs> uh, people like to take digs at the uh, the name of the town i'm from but do you, uh, do, do you know what the what the name is based on i mean are there really knobs that are made out of shells or is it more because think, of where it is you know i i should know this i think like one of the early settlers uh I, you know there was like a hill that for whatever reason was named shell i don't know i i, I wish i could tell you more i should i should have studied up it, it was named uh, after uh you know cornelia shell knob <laughs> Who discovered right. who discovered the town on a venture to try and poach buffalo? I may I'm making this up. I, I'm not even. Gonna yeah, there's no buffalo around Lake Tanicomo. I can tell you. Not anymore. But but continue. So Shell Knob uh, is, is is where I grew up. We actually there's not a high school in Shell Knob, so we uh, I had to my I was I went to Cassville for, okay. for my schooling uh, from K through 12, and I graduated from there in 2006. And went to Mizzou and graduated from there in 2010 uh, with a degree in business. But I've, I've, before I ran for the House of Representatives, um, kind of while I was in the later years of high school through college and up until now, I've been in the boat dock uh, manufacturing and construction business. And I started doing that. Uh, I lived on the lake. I grew up on the lake. It was kind of a kind of a lake bum my my whole life, and uh, enjoyed working on the water. And so I kind of I turned that into my job, and and over the years we've you know expanded our our presence uh, from just Table Rock Lake to really uh, doing work across the country. And so that's my my other job besides being a legislator is uh, uh, we we build marinas as our primary source of revenue. 
And so I just kind of, I double as a business person and a state legislator. And, and uh, after school, I, you know, my business was here. And so during school, I traveled back and forth a lot. And then after I graduated from college, I relocated uh, back to where I grew up. That was going to be my question. Like, how did you run what I would imagine is a pretty sophisticated business while you were in college? That seems like something that not everybody does every day. You know, when I when I went to college, uh, there were about six or seven people that worked here, and we uh, basically outsourced a lot of our manufacturing and things like that. And I had one guy that was that was in the sales uh, aspect of the business that was traveling and doing a little bit of the sales, and basically another guy that we would basically go. Uh, he he ran a crew that would go out and we would assemble the docks and and do the repair work and. And so it was kind of a small outfit at the beginning. And then after, you know, I was back here during the summers. And so uh, after that first year I was in college, we decided that we would be better off if we were manufacturing a lot of our own components. So uh, I kind of was, I was renting out a couple of bays in a storage building for, to keep our tools and equipment in. You know, eventually, um, I, you know, I've, I've rented additional space in that storage building and turned it into a little manufacturing shop. Uh, and it, it was just a matter of having the right people. You know, it, I was fortunate enough to uh, have have the opportunity to hire some people that had been in this industry before. And uh, it was just a matter. I, I couldn't have done it without some of the people that worked for me while I was gone. And, uh, you know, I think anybody who's in business uh, and who's done, you know, who's, who has very many employees will tell you that they are the, you know, good employees, good people to, to work with you or are the backbone of any, any successful company. And uh, without them, you know, there, there is no business. So uh, it was just a matter of being lucky in that regard. So, I mean, you were pretty young when you did all this. And aren't you one of the younger legislators in Jefferson City? How old are you? Uh, well, I will have my, uh, what do they call it, your golden birthday. I'll turn 28th. I'll yeah. turn 28 years old on the 28th of September. So next Monday, I'll, I'll have my 28th birthday. And I was, so when I got to the House of Representatives and I was elected the first time, I think I turned 25 after the primary. And, and so I was, I was 25 when I was sworn in. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, uh, I think there might be one other, uh, member of the House that, that is a few months younger than I am, but uh, but yeah, we're he and I are. I think it's John Carpenter. I think you've probably met him. Yes, he's he's. A, I think he's a December birthday, and I'm a September birthday, but we're about the same age. So it's going to be scary when people who are born in the 1990s start becoming <laughs> legislators. I'm I was born in 1984, first of all, so it's already uh, like for example, and I've said this before, when Stephen Weber was elected in 2008, he's a slightly older than me. That was a sign of my impending mortality right there at the end there. But it, it, even though I think we're making making a, we're just making note of your age, you have moved up pretty quickly in the Missouri House. You're the vice chairman of the Missouri uh, or not the Missouri of the House Budget Committee. Tell us a little bit kind of how you found your niche in the House and kind of what you've become known for since you were elected in 2012. Well, you know, when you when you get to when I when I first got elected, you know, we went up there and started becoming familiar with what you know, essentially what happens when a new member gets when a new group of people get elected to the house, is you go up and you meet the staff that work at 
work in the legislature and you go through the orientation process and you meet the you meet all the other members and you realize in that process that um, that there are a lot of everybody there comes from a different walk of life. Uh, there are some people obviously that come from similar backgrounds, but people have their niche and and you know their background. You know, I was a uh, a relatively uh, young person, still am, and didn't have uh, as much uh, life experience as a lot of the folks there. But you know, the experience that I did have was in business and was largely related to you know numbers and and finances and and things like that. And you know, before you know, when I was in college, I you know, if I had some free time every once in a while, or if I got bored, I would I'd be on Yahoo Finance, just looking at companies' balance sheets and income statements, and and looking at their, uh, you know, just how they how they run their business, and and always kind of found that fascinating. And so, being in a position to uh, actually have some impact on that size of an enterprise, you know, that being the Missouri State Government. Uh, I found intriguing, so I, you know, I made sure that the uh, the speaker at the time, Tim Jones, knew that I uh, was very interested in serving on the budget committee. I spent quite a bit of time with the uh, the staff and House Appropriations that that uh, staffed the budget committees and the, and the appropriations subcommittees, and and uh, I was fortunate that Speaker Jones put me on the budget committee. I was one of four freshmen, uh, first you know first term members that were uh, put on the budget committee from my class or from my uh, caucus and uh, you know so I guess you know the the uh, you know kindness of speaker Jones to put me on the committee was the first uh, the first step in, in in that path that I ended up being on and then at that point I just I really spent a lot of time with the staff and house appropriations just learning as much as I could about the state's budget and the state the, the process of, of appropriating money the constitutional uh, provisions, whether they be uh, you know restrictions on how we use money, et cetera, that that exist, so that I understood uh, the budget and and the the requirements uh, of us in that process better than you know a lot of people who were focusing on other other niches that that they were more familiar with. So, with um, you are the vice chairman, and typically the vice chairman most of the time has kind of a leg up to become the budget chairman after the budget chairman terms out of office. Tom Flanagan is currently the budget chairman. He's from Carthage. He terms out of the legislature after 2016, I think. Um, So it had been thought that you were going to be the next budget chair. You may still be, but one of the wrinkles that has occurred is Marsha Hafner, who I think has also tried to become budget chair, has decided to run for re-election instead of the Senate. Is there going to be like a contested battle for the gavel of that committee, or is it really just going to be up to Speaker Richardson about who he ends up choosing after 2016? Well, I think that you know, as everybody on this phone or on this conversation, this conversation is aware that the Speaker has the final say on who chairs every committee. Um, you know, I think that uh, Marsha is a uh, very intelligent. Person, she's a good legislator, and she's done well on the committees that she's chaired. And uh, I, I assume that uh, the speaker is going to look at, uh, you know, I'm, I, the two of us, and I'm, uh, maybe there are other people that uh, are interested in that position. I don't know, but I assume that the speaker will look at, uh, look at those uh, his options and and kind of weigh what the uh, 
the strengths and opportunities of each uh, each person who wants to do the job are, and uh, he'll just make the decision the best that he can. Well, in your position, Obviously. yeah, I've got two related questions. First, I mean, have there been surprises since you've been on the the committee? Is there a particular area that, of the budget that you're particularly focused on, and what do you see as the challenges going forward in the next few years? Well, I spent my first two years. In addition to being on the budget committee, I was on the uh, I was on the appropriations committee. Which, for the people who aren't real familiar with the way the budget committee works, there's there's uh, they're basically the appropriations committees are essentially subcommittees of the budget committee. So I was on one of the subcommittees as well as being on the the, the budget committee that over that those report to, and uh, the subcommittee that I was on was the appropriations committee for uh, tra- transportation, revenue, and economic development. And so that was the uh, the area that I became most familiar with uh, my first two years in the legislature because in the appropriations committees we really had the opportunity to dive into the uh, to the subject matter there. Um, I uh, you know I think that everybody uh, would agree or most people would agree that the two biggest issues facing us in the state budget going forward right now are probably going to be. Uh, a, the growth of Medicaid expenditures and Medicaid-related expenditures, and B, uh, how do we continue to ensure that we can fully match federal funds in our transportation uh, transportation budget. And those are going to be the things that I think are going to consume a good portion of our, our time and efforts uh, during this next session and the sessions going forward. Have you gotten uh, one of the budget-related things that occurred this week was the governor announced that he wants to increase higher education spending by about $55 million, and that will be paired with a tuition freeze, so to speak. I'm not sure if you've delved into those news stories very much, but from my understanding, this is not the first time the governor has proposed this before the budget kind of comes out or even before the consensus revenue comes out. Is that going to be well-received by the legislature? Is it really just going to depend on what the budget numbers end up being later in the year? Well, I think the, uh, you know, at this at this stage in the game, I mean, we're, what are we, uh, not even three months. We're not even three months into the uh, the current budget year. And uh, the, the daily numbers uh, for, for today, the daily general revenue report this morning, uh, shows that we are uh, down about 1.3%. Uh, in our collections over last year, so uh, if you know the, the the ability of the governor to include that amount of money in his budget proposal to the legislature, and the ability of the legislature to include it in the in the actual budget, uh, I think is still to be determined. I think that you know one one issue is going to be a is are we going to have a supplemental budget request from the Department of Social Services? for Medicaid expenditures. And I think that all the indications that I'm receiving are that we probably will. And the size of that that uh, supplemental request uh, is, is going to have a direct impact on the available resources we have going in, into the next budget year. So, you know, would it be nice if we had the money and we could give uh, higher education, uh, you know, appropriate additional $55 million to higher education? Yeah, that'd be great. And I think that higher education is uh, is an important thing uh, to to fund. I mean, I think it's I think having an educated workforce is one of the 
you know, one of the top economic development uh, tools that we can have. Uh, you know, that kind of relates back to my answer about how, you know, people are the, are the most important thing in any business. So, you know, I, I'd love to be able to fund higher education, but I think it's way too early in the fiscal year right now to be able to tell what our ability to do that is going to be. Now, as you know, I mean, there's been this fight for several years over Medicaid expansion, and the state of Missouri has basically passed up um, at least four billion and possibly more if you're going to if if you're looking at next year in federal money to pay for it. Um, on the budget committee, I mean, is there any reconsidering? I know there was some talk last session of trying to come up with some sort of way. Um, now that you're going to be facing uh, additional expenditure requests from the Department of Social Services, do you expect any sort of reconsideration, or is that sort of not not on the table? You know, I think you know there's there's a couple of facets to this. I think one of the facets is you know the political facet, and that that you know just politically, it's probably not going to be a feasible thing for any type of uh, expansion or reform of Medicaid to occur in a you know I, I know this is this seems to be a recurring excuse for a lot of for a lot of people but i, I just don't know that how far that will advance in a in a presidential and gubernatorial election year um i think that for me from an operational standpoint looking at the state of missouri and you know our government we are in the process of transitioning and it's been an abysmal process of transitioning for, to a new eligibility determination system and the wait times, I mean, people who are who were eligible for Medicaid or are eligible for Medicaid under the current state law are having a hard time even getting the department to effectively handle their case. If we open the floodgates to hundreds of thousands of additional people right now, uh, I don't, A, I don't see how the department has the ability to even process those people. We're, we're, not, we're not getting the current workload uh, through the system right now. And you've got, I mean, you've got, you know, in the cases of uh, issues like pregnant women who are obviously very time sensitive cases that those determinations have to be made. You know, if we pour another few hundred thousand people into, into the backlog of this thing, you know, I think it could have some pretty drastic negative effects on the existing population. That is, you know, in addition to, uh, you know, the additional costs that we're going to have, you know, it's, you know, even if it is a 90-10 match, the costs of, of Medicaid are just, they, they go up faster than anything else in the state budget. And it's really one of the main non-discretion, it is the largest non-discretionary item that we have to fund. It doesn't matter. It's not like we can say, mm, you guys want $10 billion, we'll give you nine. Because what happens when, when we do that is that pharmacists, don't get paid, you know, doctors don't get paid, hospitals don't get paid, the service providers don't get paid for what they're, for the work that they're doing at, and it's already at, you know, their Medicaid reimbursement rate, reimbursement rates are not that impressive. So it's, it's an issue that we're going to have to address uh, one way or the other. And I think it's going to have to happen through reforms, but you know, the, the expansion argument, uh, I think with the growth in the existing Medicaid uh, expenditures is going to be a really tough one for anybody to make. So let's transition into a couple of things that have percolated. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is veto session, which happened last week. Um, the big ticket item was right to work, which would 
Well, Joe, can you explain what right to work is again? Okay. Well, basically, right to work is it was the bill that would have barred unions and employers from requiring all workers in a bargaining unit to pay dues or fees. Yes. So it didn't end up it, – it, it had a majority, but it did not get a veto-proof majority. You were one of the people, I believe, who voted to override the governor. What's kind of your take on the entire situation? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know that there were many people that expected us to have the votes to override that veto. I think that, you know, we the, – the, in a veto session, the – decision to try to override is one that, you know, is really up to every sponsor. It's not something that, uh, as far as I'm aware, has been micromanaged uh, by anybody, uh, you know, in, in leadership. And so, you know, the, you know, the, the, a lot of the people in the caucus wanted to see this, this veto overridden. Obviously, there were 20 people uh, in our caucus who uh, did not want the veto to be overridden. And I think it just solidified the, uh, the idea that it's more than likely going to require there to be a, a Republican governor, you know, in order to uh, make Missouri right to work state. And, you know, we have an election in 2016, and I think that uh, the outcome of that election is, is probably going to, uh, you know, have an impact on whether or not Missouri becomes a right to work state. Now, that's not to say that uh, some people may not, you know, term out or other people may. Uh, not run for re-election, et cetera. And, you know, I think all, if you, all of a sudden, if you get to from 96, uh, I think if you get to 105, getting the last four is something that, that is a lot easier when, when you've got 105 or 106 people who are strongly in support of it, the people who are on the fence, uh, you know, may, may go ahead and, and vote to override the veto. So, um, you know, I, I guess that's my take on it. You know, it's disappointing that we didn't override the veto, but uh, it wasn't unexpected. Were there any other things during veto session in particular that you were either surprised by or had, um, were pleased to see happen? Um, you know, I, I don't think my, my biggest concern going into veto session was going to be the function, the, the ability of the Senate to function. Uh, obviously, at the end of the at the end of the year uh, last year, you know, things. Uh, Things got uh, pretty bogged down over there, and I didn't know, you know, if that was going to continue. And it seems that, uh, you know, that, that, that you know every, everything, you know, once the right to work vote occurred in the House, the gears started turning over in the Senate, and uh, you know there was debate on the bills. But at the end of the day, they they were able to get get the bills that we all anticipated that were going to be overridden. They got those done, and uh, I don't think there were really any surprises um everything we wanted to do we did uh you know we we knew that the school transfer bill as house bill 42 we knew before we got there that that wasn't going to be uh that wasn't gonna go so you know it would have been nice to to get that dealt with but you know i think the three bills that i was i was most interested in going into it were senate bill 224 which i i was the handler of in the house uh, House Bill 150, which was the unemployment reform bill that the House overrode during session and the Senate overrode uh, at veto session. And then lastly, it was uh, I think it's House Bill 722, 
which was the uh, the bill with the, the the minimum wage provision in it. So those were the three that I was I was focused on and hopeful would be would be overridden, and and they all were. So that's where we. Uh, you know, that's where we ended up. So the first bill that you mentioned, I, I think, believe dealt with the A-plus scholarship program. Could you talk a little bit more about what that bill was trying to do and kind of the, the pushback that occurred from the governor and other people? Yeah. So really, you know, the, I think there are probably a lot of people who, who, if they're not familiar with the background on this, may not understand the, the motives or the intention behind that bill. Before uh, this year, Essentially, what the what the bill did, I guess, is what I should probably start with, is it it made it to so that the A plus scholarship is available to citizens and permanent residents. Prior prior to that, uh, you had to be lawfully present, but you also had to fill out the FAFSA, complete the FAFSA uh, to draw down uh, federal aid. Um, and for all intents and purposes, that made it so that you had to basically either be a citizen or permanent resident to have access to the scholarship because in order to be eligible to fill out the FAFSA at the federal level, you have to be a citizen or permanent resident. So um, what happened was obviously the the Obama administration created this program called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which is basically a form of prosecutorial discretion for what a lot of people refer to as dreamers or, you know, people who arrived here before their 16th birthday and I think prior to 2007 uh, were eligible for this deferred action program and uh, basically just meant that they would that the department was going to give them temporary lawful presence which is different from lawful status uh, that doesn't give them a green card or a visa or anything like that but it was they were going to basically through executive action give temporary lawful presence to these students the Department of Higher Education you know, said, well, the only thing that would block these students from having access to the A-plus scholarship then is, is filling out the A-plus, or filling out the FAFSA. So the department promulgated a rule last year to eliminate the requirement of those students to fill out the FAFSA, and that when they eliminated their, that requirement, it would make them eligible for the A-plus scholarship. My concern and the concern of, I think we had two Democrats in the House and one in the Senate vote for the bill during session. And my concern uh, was that, A, the news that they were going to promulgate this rule came only days after they announced that the funding that the legislature approved, which, by the way, was the amount of money the governor asked for for the scholarship program, they announced that that funding wasn't going to be adequate to meet the needs of the program as it was. So shortly after we realized, the department realizes that the that the program is underfunded, they then announced that they're going to expand it to to additional people. B, any student who doesn't go to a a A plus qualifying high school, whether that be a public school that doesn't that doesn't qualify, which and there's a certain set of criteria in the statute that they have to meet to qualify, or if they are homeschooled or private school or charter schooled, any of those students, those those students, even if they're citizens, are not eligible for the A plus scholarship. So I had a problem with expanding access to a scholarship program for people who weren't citizens and who whether, you know, people agree with it or not, weren't here legally. Uh, I had a problem with expanding access to those people before we, you know, give access to the other citizens in the state who don't, who don't have access to it. Uh, so we, you know, filed that bill. The bill would have been completely unnecessary had the, had the Department of Higher Education not changed the rule. And uh, so really the bill just kept things as they are and, you know, prevented, you know, an executive 
branch agency from making a change without any input from anybody who was elected. And that got overridden along with the several other bills as well. We want to talk about another issue that I think could become an issue that's larger next year, and that is the St. Louis football stadium. Basically, there is fear among many legislators that the the Nixon administration is going to issue bonds for a new football stadium without a legislative vote or a popular vote. And what I believe you and many other people have said in letters is you will not support appropriating money to pay off those bonds unless it's either voted upon by the legislature beforehand or there's a popular vote for it. I just want to make sure, is that is that the correct summation of, of, of what you were saying before? Yeah, I would agree with that, that assessment of my position. Uh, you know, as uh, as it began to appear that, uh, you know, the governor was, was, I guess, making it publicly known that he fully intended, uh, that, you know, this is going to happen. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do this thing with or without the Rams, you know, and it started becoming a, a, a more realistic, uh, you know, action that seemed like he was strongly considering taking or taking, uh, you know, that, that started raising red flags with not just myself, obviously Senator Shaw, uh, I believe sent, sent out his, the first letter on his side and obviously representative Barnes on the house side, um, has been working on this issue for quite some time. You know, I, I was kind of, I was kind of sitting back assuming that, the, that there was no, I mean, that this thing was going to die under its own weight. Um, but once it started to look more and more likely that uh, you know the governor was going to 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 push this forward, I felt a, a responsibility to make my position known because, as you're aware, I mean the the appropriations on the debt service do have to pass the budget committee, and uh, so I just let the uh, I wrote a letter and let the governor know that that was my position and that I did not support him unilaterally issuing debt for a, for a new stadium, which isn't even a state owned asset. I mean, in every other case where debt's been issued for a large project, look at Fulton, the Fulton hospital, for example, uh, you know, there's always been legislative approval prior to the issuance of the bonds. And, uh, so it was just a, a matter of, you know, I didn't think we should be sitting on our hands and then later on say, uh, well, we don't like the way you did this. We're not going to pay for it. I think we needed to be proactive, and and since that has happened, uh, we've there have been a lot of other legislators who have joined that uh, joined that coalition. Now, is there concern about the impact of losing a football team and uh, gaining one? I mean, I was around when all this was going on. Something similar 25 years ago, after the uh, football Cardinals left, and after a couple years. The state got involved. Some legislators at the time, many of them thought that it turned out to be more important to have an NFL team than they thought. I mean, is there any discussion? I mean, are thoughts among legislators uh, from your neck of the woods about that impact, or is it considered this is a St. Louis problem and they're going to have to fix it themselves? Um, you know, I think that you know, if you if you took a survey of all the legislators in the state and asked them, do you? would you like to have a football team in St. Louis? The answer would be probably a unanimous yes. I mean, it, it's not an issue where uh, where we think that there shouldn't be a football team or don't want the Rams to stay or, you know, I, I'm hopeful the Rams will stay. Obviously, they don't seem too interested in staying. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's much more an issue of, of process 
than it is. I mean, to me, the the obligation of this amount of money uh, of taxpayer funds that that aren't they're not just St. Louis taxpayer funds. They're people who live on you know the Arkansas border, who live on the Iowa border up in Northwest Missouri. That you know their tax dollars would would go to support to support these appropriations. And I don't think that you know. It, it just it defies history the way that the governor is attempting to do it, and I don't think that it should happen without there being at least a vote of the people who who are you know who have to answer to their constituents when we appropriate this money, or the constituents themselves. So I'm going to play. This is a politically speaking first, by the way. I'm going to play two clips back to back of the governor. Um, the first one is from February 2015, where I asked him about legislation that had been filed by Ryan Sylvie of Kansas City, a Republican state senator, that would have required either a legislative or statewide vote to issue bonds for a new stadium. This is what he had to say when I asked him that question. Well, I mean, first of all, the legislature gets a vote on the bonds each and every year. I mean, the, the, the current bonds and all of the bonds of the state must go through and do go through the appropriations process. Uh, and have to be approved. And in order to maintain our AAA standard and AAA-rated bonds, they, they, they vote on those. That's part of the process. So, so they'll be involved in, 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 those, uh, in that decision-making process. So a little bit of time passed. The Sylvie's bill didn't end up passing. There was an attempt to place language inside the budget that I don't think ended up passing in the Budget Conference Committee. But after the legislative session occurred, as you kind of alluded to, a number of legislators, including uh, Senator Rob Schaff and a few other senators and budget chairman of both chambers, basically said what you just said, that they weren't going to support paying off bonds that weren't uh, either approved by the legislature or a statewide vote. This is what the governor had to say in reaction to that uh, situation of legislators raising alarm after the session. Last year, the legislature talked about this a number of times uh, and took off language that would have uh, uh, slowed down the process. The fact that in the interim, uh, four or five or six uh, folks start talking about it out of a legislature with 200 people, uh, they're certainly entitled to say what they want, but it is not going to uh, uh, dramatically affect the continued progress we're making in a taxpayer-sensitive way to move forward. So what the governor basically was saying there was there were attempts to try and restrict what he is maybe going to do with these bonds, and they basically ended up fail, failing. His message to me signaled that it was like too little too late to try to stop this this train from going forward. Uh, what's kind of your impression of, of his remarks, especially juxtaposed what he said earlier in February? Well, I think that, you know, A, one of the reasons that that language may have not been in the budget, okay, is if we decide that we have to start telling the governor the things he can't do with the money that we appropriate, I think that that opens a pretty uh, dangerous can of worms. Because, you know, what else do we have to tell him he can't do? You know, I think the purpose of an appropriation, you have to state, the Constitution says we have to state the specific amount and purpose of an appropriation. Uh, the appropriation for the, uh, for that, for that Edward Jones, Edward Jones Dome said exactly that. It's for uh, pay, a payment on the debt service for the Edward Jones Dome, um, you know, refinancing those bonds and uh, and and using that appropriation to pay for any to pay for debt service on anything other than the Edward Jones Dome, uh, you know, would be a, you know in direct contradiction to what the appropriation said. So I disagree with the 
you know, with, with the governor's assertion of the situation being that because there was no language in the budget that said he can't go do this, that uh, that he therefore has we've given him our our stamp of approval. Um, you know, that's obviously not a uh, uh, you know a, the position I'm going to take. So um, I think you know when you listen to the and it, some time has passed since the governor uh, made the second remarks, but uh, obviously last week. The Senate, uh, there were 21 senators who signed a letter stating that they were going to uh, not support the appropriation uh, of, of money for that purpose. So you have almost a supermajority of state senators, and you're familiar enough with the, uh, the, the process in the Senate that if you get two or three or four senators that are against something strong enough, it's not going to happen, right? And when you have 21 uh, which is more than half, obviously, you know, just by simple math, it's not going to happen. But even if some of them change their mind, uh, the opposition of that many senators is not going to uh, not going to to go away, and it's not going to be something that can be overcome, in my opinion. And I think you'll see similar, probably a similar similar percentage of House members in the coming uh, weeks uh, will probably uh, join the ranks of of people who have been publicly opposed to it in the legislature. So my final question for you is, if Nixon does end up extending the bonds by himself and he comes to the legislature with a budget that asks the legislature to approve paying off the bonds, and it may not even be Governor Nixon, it could be Governor Coster or Governor Kinder or whatever, is, the, is it just not going to be even included in the, the final bill that comes out of the legislature, given that you and Senator Sylvie, who may end up being the next budget chairs, probably going to have a big say on that decision. Well, I think the one thing that the governor did say that was accurate was that there are almost 200 people in the legislature. Um, and, you know, even if even if a budget chair or a, a an appropriations chairman uh, by themselves are uh, for or against something uh, in a budget, it does not necessarily mean that if, you know, the 195 other people are on the opposite side of the issue that uh, it doesn't mean that the, that the budget chair will win that argument. But I would say that given the uh, discussions that I've had with other members, that if the governor, whether it be this one or another one, were to take the action that this governor has said he will take, uh, and there are people out there who are uh, unaware enough to actually buy the bonds, that it's going to be an un- unfortunate situation for for those people because I I don't see us changing. I mean, when you have this many people, and especially the people that it is. I mean, you've got like you said, you've got the budget and uh, and the the Senate budget leaders and the House budget leaders, number one and number two on both sides, saying that they're not going to support the appropriations. It's a it, it's going to be a major uphill climb. So um, I would say that it's very unlikely, almost certainly not going to, the budget will almost certainly not include any appropriation for that debt service, whether or not the governor issues the bonds. The only other thing, I, I said that was the last question, but I do want to ask this, would that have an impact on the on the state's credit rating if there's bonds issued and, you know, they the state doesn't end up paying them off? Uh, you know, it, it that would obviously be up to the rating agencies. I think that you know the decision that I would make in that in that case uh, 
would would be cognizant of the fact that there is the potential that it could have a negative impact on the state's credit rating. And that would be uh, extremely unfortunate. But at the end of the day, uh, ensuring that the process uh, remains, uh, you know, true and and uh, and you know, and the way it should be is, uh, I think, more important to me than losing one of the A's off of our credit rating. Uh, so I, I you know, hope it doesn't come to that. But if it does, that you know, it's the situation we might find ourselves in. And uh, this may be all a big philosophical exercise because if Stan Kroenke wants to move his team to L.A. and the owners approve it. I don't think there's going to be a new stadium, and I think we're just kind of talking in philosophical realms here anyways. But uh, we're, we're completely out of time. We appreciate you uh, joining us for this show. Um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. I'm on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Joe is on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how can we follow you on Twitter, Representative? It's at... It's Patrick Mo, F I T Z P A T R I C K M O. It, it, it is a longer uh, handle than usual, but is entertaining as always. Uh, there you un- go. Until next week, so long. <laughs> <laughs>